think we're celebrating 10 years next week. That's amazing. The main thing is I know I am a lot older than I was 10 years ago. Yesterday was a very important day. Um, we got to celebrate uh, the wedding of Kaylin Madison. Many of you remember Kaylin. Um, she was a very important part of the bridge. She was one of our hosts on Sunday morning and uh, served in many capacities. And it was just a very God-honoring uh, ceremony yesterday in Minneapolis. And uh, it was just great to see what God has done in her life. So Bridge Kids, they're just waiting. You are dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 17. I want to invite you to find uh, Luke chapter 17 on your smartphone or perhaps in a Bible. And we always remind you that you can pick up a Bible on the way in. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're always welcome to take one of those home because we'd love for you to have a Bible. Luke chapter 17. Some of you here will remember a picture of a little girl running in South Vietnam on a road uh, as her village was being bombed. Uh, she was running down the road naked because her clothes had been burned off by napalm. Uh, her name was Kim Fuke. She was nine years old. The picture appeared in the New York Times on June 8, 1972. Now, some of you were born after 1972, and you don't remember the New York Times picture. It has become a classic picture representing the Vietnam War, and perhaps you've seen it as it relates to the history of the Vietnam War. Later, the picture would receive a Pulitzer Prize and would represent the horror and sadness of the Vietnam War. Uh, Kim Fuke uh, picked up the name from this picture, and she became the napalm girl. She received third-degree burns on much of her body and had 17 surgeries over 14 months before she could be released from the hospital. And uh, to add to that story, the napalm attack was accidentally dropped by her own government and on her village as they were attempting uh, to uh, attack the Viet Cong. Um, today, Kim Fuke lives in Canada. A book has been written about her life called The Girl in the Picture. Uh, she is married now with two children. And throughout her life, she would have many more surgeries. On December 21st, 2017, Kim Fuke is quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying, the trauma she suffered in the napalm strike still requires treatment, but the psychological trauma was greater. She said this, this is a quote, but even worse than the physical pain was the emotional and spiritual pain. The pain in Kim Fuke's life, led her to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in 1982. Later she would write, My faith in Jesus Christ is what has enabled me to forgive those who wronged me, no matter how severe the wrongs were. 
Has your faith in Jesus Christ enabled you to forgive those who have wronged you? Today in Luke's Gospel, we have four short lessons on discipleship. I want to invite you to look at Luke 17. The first one is the lesson on responsibility. A lesson on responsibility. I like to read verses 1 through 4 to get us started. So uh, please look at the text with me. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to the person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times come back and comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So let's look at this. So lesson on responsibility. The first is a warning in verses uh, uh, 1 through 3, and it's a warning to live well. He said to his disciples, things cause people to stumble or bound to come. There are all kinds of things, all kinds of allurements, all kinds of uh, uh, temptations and attractions towards sin. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That's just life. It's the world we live in. But then he says, as a warning, don't you be the one responsible for leading someone else. And it's sort of like part of it is he's dealing with a culture where, well, I didn't sin. It was they did it. But what if you are part of the influence or it's your teaching that leads them into this or your encouragement that leads them in to one of these choices? Jesus is saying, uh, woe to anyone in this situation. Be responsible for how you live. He's talking to to Christ followers, to disciples. But don't forget who's in the audience and they've been in the audience for a long time, chapter after chapter, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So he's instructing his disciples on how to live and how not to live. And he says in verse 2, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is a shocking picture, a shocking word picture. And that was the point of Jesus' teaching. And that's how he often said things. Um, He he, he says, don't you... uh, When when he's talking about one of these little ones, it often refers to children. And he, he may be referring to children because adults are responsible for raising up kids. And also, sometimes it just refers to uh, people who are young in the faith, young disciples. And uh, he said, don't you be the one to cause them to stumble. And he gives this picture. It's it's a a surprising picture of a man with a millstone hung around his neck. You know, and I don't know how big the millstone was, but, you know, I just pictured it's uh, about this round and it's probably fairly thick, and it's a stone, and uh, it's got a hole in the center, because the way that operated, well, there were two millstones. There was a stationary one under, uh, below, and right on top of it, there was one that was hooked up to a donkey or an oxen, 
and it would walk in a circle, and that would grind uh, grain. The grain was poured in the top into that hole. That was just a common picture uh, in the first century. And Jesus is saying, you know what? It would be better for you to have a millstone hung around on your neck and uh, thrown into a sea. And, you know, I don't think that would be a good, good choice or a good result. But what he's talking about here is judgment to come. And he, and he referred to this in other places. But it would be better for you to drown in the sea than it would be for you to go to hell. You are responsible for your actions. And you're responsible for how you live before other people. You know, and Jesus uh, would say things like this. It was an attention getter. He's making a point. You know, um, on one occasion he said, it would be better to cut your hand off if it's causing you to sin than it would be for you to go to hell. He didn't tell anybody to cut their hand off. He didn't say anybody should tie a millstone around anybody's neck. And, and, and then he also said it, it would be better for you to gouge out your eye if it was causing you to sin than it would be to go to hell. And he's exactly right. And the point he's making, judgment to come is a serious thing. Pay attention. It makes a difference how you live. He's not saying... You could never be forgiven if you've ever caused somebody else to sin. If you don't deal with your sin, it would be way better for you to have a millstone around your neck than it is to go to hell. That's what he's saying. Anybody can be for, forgiven for any sin. God's mercy and grace is always available. But, but keep in mind here, who is in the audience beside the disciples? It's the Pharisees, and they have led hundreds or thousands of people away from the truth of the Messiah. Jesus is present, and they're dragging their feet all the way, and they're discouraging people about following Jesus. And he's giving them a warning, and he's making sure the disciples aren't influenced by them goes on to talk about um, forgiveness in verses 3 and 4. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. There's an, there's an opportunity. It's okay to give feedback. It's okay to speak the truth in love. In fact, you should speak the truth in love. Um, it's not necessarily Christian to be passive all the time. You don't have to be uh, sin Nazis or you know, the police when it comes to uh, rebuking people. But there is a place to speak the truth and love when somebody wrongs you. Um, so if a brother or sister sins against you, go ahead, speak the truth and love and rebuke them. And if they repent, now Jesus wants to make sure that they get this. If they repent, you forgive them. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind uh, about this, your attitude, about this sin, about your pride, about your self-focus, and admit that you have wronged another person. That was, that's what it means to repent. It's a, it's a change. And ultimately, when we talk about coming to Christ, repent means conversion um, with faith in Jesus Christ. 
If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day. How many times? Seven times in a day. Okay, seven times I'm done, right? No. In Matthew 5, Jesus, or in Matthew, Jesus talks about up to 70 times 70. And he wasn't putting 490 as a, okay, that's your limit. He's, it's a, seven is a number of completeness and fullness, and it represents you just keep forgiving. You, you continually forgive. And uh, that can be a really tough call. What if a husband is unfaithful? How many times should a wife forgive an unfaithful husband? Once? Twice? Seven times? Jesus would say, yes. What if someone is sexually abused? How many times should they forgive their abuser? Once? Ten times? More? Jesus would say, yes. But one of the confusing things is when, when we get a hurt and offended, and especially something that deep, as, as deep as uh, somebody being unfaithful or somebody sexually abusing another person, that kind of pain is so complicated. And here's what I may, want to make a distinction about. There's a difference between forgiveness, forgiving a person, and trusting that person. And just because I forgive them doesn't mean I have to be reconciled to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Oftentimes that's the goal is reconciliation, but oftentimes reconciliation is not possible. It doesn't require that I welcome that person with open arms. That's not forgiveness. And just be clear. Um, there has to be a safe place and there has to be trust. That's what marriage vows are all about. It's about trust. It's about fidelity. And when that's broken, that takes time to earn if it's ever going to come back. Trust. But forgiveness? Yes. Okay. Hard stuff here. Application from this passage. Our daily life can be a positive example or a negative example of what it means to follow Christ. There's two quick scenarios. Um, so the question is, are you good news to people or are you bad news? Do you represent Jesus well, good news, or poorly? Your bad news confuses the gospel. People get confused about the truth. How do Christians live like that? Ephesians 5 uh, represents what Jesus said here. Be, he says, be very careful then how you live. I like that. Be very careful. Think about your choices. Think about your attitudes. Think about your situations. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. It's just going to, you know, people are going to sin. And we are not perfect. And that's why we're celebrating communion today, because we are not perfect. We're going to remember the death of Jesus, but we just need to make sure that our sins are confessed, because we are not perfect. And we do sin, we do hurt each other, we sometimes make dumb choices, and we need forgiveness and to be cleansed. And this is just one way Jesus planned for his church 
to get it together. Okay, so making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Some Christians really are foolish. They would do some really dumb things. Don't be foolish. Don't, dis- don't be lazy. Don't dishonor Jesus with your choices. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, we've we got a lot to cover here. Lesson on faith, verses 5 and 6. There's a request. I love the, the apostles' response, the apostles being the disciples. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's almost like the disciples are overwhelmed by this picture of the man with the, with the millstone and he's drowning. And uh, gee, I just attempted somebody over here. I just made somebody angry and they responded in anger. We got into a fight and I just I led them into sin. And um, this, the expectations that Jesus has forgiveness, it just seems too much. And so they, they need more faith. Uh, increase our faith. That's what they asked for, but they don't understand yet. Verse 6, he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, small, uh, mustard seed was known, you know, and this was just like, you think, what's the smallest seed? I, okay, mustard seed, the smallest seed I could think of. And um, they're not impressive. They're not noticeable. They're small and ordinary, just kind of like us. And he said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, say this to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Right? There, there again, Jesus has given us one of those word pictures. He wants us to pay attention here. But he's not asking for you to have more faith. You just need a tiny bit of faith. It just makes all the difference in the world who your faith is in. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make all of the difference. Um, By the way, Jesus has never asked me to say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted. And and I don't think it's not nowhere in Scripture where you're asked to do that. It said you could, because that would be like a miraculous thing. What Jesus is pointing to is if you have your faith in the right person, in Jesus Christ, in Him who is the Messiah, you will be able to do what God asks you to do. And He's all about advancing His kingdom. That's His number one priority is to advance the kingdom of God. Now think, He's speaking directly to His disciples, and that's going to include the miraculous. That's going to include doing miracles. It's going to include to saying to someone who is blind to open your eyes and see. It's going, to be, it's going to say to somebody who is lame to stand up and walk. And you know what? The disciples will do that. But it was all about advancing the kingdom. They were doing things that God wanted them to do to advance the kingdom. And that's what he wants. Um, he, he wants his Christ followers to see it's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. And just, it's about doing what God wants us to do through his authority and strength. That's all. It's just doing what God wants you to do through his authority and strength. 
And it's always going to be about advancing his kingdom. Um, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, when we, uh, application, our faith is to be focused on Jesus and his kingdom work. You don't have to ever focus on uh, t- having a mulberry tree be uprooted, okay? And it will not advance the kingdom. It's not in the plan. But when God wants you to do something, trust Him and move forward. Okay? Um, Our focus is to be on what God wants. What He wants, not on what I want. Uh, It's not our focus. You know, I want this, I want this, I want this, and I want this miracle, I want this miracle. No, it's about what God wants and getting our hearts aligned with Him. Hebrews eleven six says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. It's about faith. We, we begin a relationship with Christ by faith, but it doesn't end there. Pleasing God is a daily thing. It's living by faith daily. It's trusting what God says. And that means if he tells me to do something, living by faith is doing it. It's, it's very closely tied with our obedience. That's why we obey. Uh, Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Seeking God's kingdom first is about living by faith, it's about his values, choosing his values against everybody else's values. And when you move forward with his values, you're living by faith, trusting what he wants and seeking to, to live in a way with his help. Here's some things I know that he wants me to do to advance his kingdom. I know he wants me to love my wife, okay? Very clear in scripture that that's what he has for me. And so, if I am trying to love my wife, and not just when it's convenient, then I am, I'm advancing his kingdom, I'm seeking what he wants first. I know that he wants me involved in making disciples. So when I'm involved in making disciples, helping people connect with God, that's about what his kingdom is about. And uh, I know that's his will. I can, so I can trust him for his help. I can trust him for energy or enablement. He wants me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know that. And so I can trust him that he will fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I can trust him. I know he wants me to give generously to his church and to help the poor. I know that. So when I do, I live by faith because that's not necessarily the values of the world. He wants me to be kind and loving and willing to forgive. And when I do that, I'm living by faith. I'm not talking about just trying to go through the motions and act like I'm doing these things. It's relying on God's strength. Sometimes he wants me to offer correction to another Christ follower. Uh, I know he wants me to serve others and to help others and to listen to others. John chapter 15, verses 5 and 7, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So he gives this 
picture. He's the vine. I'm one of the branches. You're one of the branches if you're a Christ follower. And we're to be connected to him because we get our life from him. His life flows through us as we're connected. Now, if I disconnect and I do my own thing, I, I lose that life. Not eternally, I just I lose the power, I lose the strength, I, use, I lose that enablement and, until I'm reconnected with him. And if I do stay connected, it says, I will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. And it says that apart from him, you and I can do nothing that's going to last forever. And then he says, if you remain in me, if you stay close in your walk with Jesus, and if your words remain, in other words, his words are important, and I want to follow them. If, if, if your words remain in me, ask whatever you wish, like the mulberry tree, but it's not going to be the mulberry tree. He's going to put his desires into your heart, and you're going to want to ask for them. His kingdom first. Okay? Okay, lesson on humility, verses 7 through 10. Let's look at that. Jesus said in verse 7, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes from the field, Come along now, sit down to eat? Nope, he wouldn't say that. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after you, after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because what he did was he was told to do? Nope doesn't seem fair. Some of us are going to struggle with that. Verse 10, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So let's look at this. First, the role of a servant, verses 7 and 8. So it's imagining you have a servant that's plowing, looking after the sheep, serving you. Will he say, come along now, sit down and eat with me. Uh, Jesus saying, no, he won't. Is there something wrong with Jesus here? You know, is, is Jesus just sort of like being bossy here? Verse 8, won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Me first, then you. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, yes and no. But for me, the story makes a whole lot more sense because of my culture, to think of it in theory. What if an employer hires an employee to work for him, gives him an agreed-upon clear job description and agreed-upon wages, and it includes doing this work and serving this meal, and then when you're done with those things, you can take your lunch break. Now, most of us don't have a problem with that if we understand what the job description is and we've agreed upon it. It's not a big deal when I eat, okay? Here's the expectation for the servant, verses 9 and 10. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Nope. Verse 10, so you also, when you've done Everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants because we have only done our duty. Now, this, you know, for some of this, it's gonna, 
For some of you, it's going to wrangle you a little bit because you're going to have a hard time bringing this into your culture. Um, we sort of think that if an employee does what he's supposed to do, that employers should say thank you. You know, thank you for doing a good job. We like to hear those kinds of things. Um, it's, you know, better work etiquette. But we live in a me generation. It's much different than any generation ever in history before. And what Jesus is talking about here is that we are Christ followers. And that's what he's saying in verse 10, the last verse. He's, he's shifting gear from his story, whether you like the story or not. He's shifting gears. And he's saying, um, after you've done everything I've instructed, don't expect me to say thank you. You're just doing what I ask you to do. Don't expect me to say thank you. We are unworthy servants. Unworthy in what sense? Meaning have no value? No, God loves you. God loves people. We just don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have a relationship in that sense. We are unworthy servants. Um, we have only done our duty. So, application. And here it is. Our self-perception should be in line with who God made us to be. Our self-perception should be in line with who God has made us to be. So, how did I uh, arrive at that? And here's what I mean. Our self-perception what we think of ourselves should not be too high because that leads to pride. You know, when we think, oh, I deserve this. Um, I'm better than these other people. That's pride. That's conceit. Uh, it's a picture of being a puffed up head, full of air, you know. And it's easy to spot, isn't it, when someone is prideful. We ought not to think too highly of ourselves. At the same time, we ought not think too lowly of ourselves, where we have a poor self-image and we lack self-confidence. There's all kinds of reasons why we have poor self-images and lack self-confidence, but the more we grow in Christ, and by the way, our worship set today was awesome about our identity in Christ who we are as children of God, forgiven, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're citizens of heaven. Make sure that we begin to align who we are with who God says we are. That's my point. Romans 12.3 reminds us, For by the grace given me, Paul writes, I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. That's what Jesus meant in our passage. He said, be careful. Be careful. About, uh, watch how you live. Sober judgment. Be accurate. Be realistic. In accordance with faith, God has distributed to each of you. Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger... Just about everybody's younger than me. Submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility. This is for all of us. Clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. You know, 
It's not about who's the most important person here or who has the most education or who has the most money. None of that makes any difference, okay? With humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For that person who thinks too highly of himself, God opposes the proud. But for the humble person, God gives grace. He gives favor for the person who understands who they are in Christ, what, a, what the significance of being forgiven is. To, to no longer be a slave to sin. To no longer have to fear the penalty of death. God gives favor. Um, it's, it's God's favor rests on those who have a, their, an accurate view of their identity in Christ. His favor rests on those who understand they're saved by grace. They don't deserve it. They understand that it's a gift they've received. They understand they're a child of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's go on to verses 11 through 19 and finish our passage. Lessons on thankfulness, and this is the last one, and the setting is of verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Just picture that in your mind right now. What's that look like on a map? Oh, there it is. <laughs> so just remember, this whole time, for chapters, he's been moving southward, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, and he's going there because he's going to die, and he knows that he will be crucified, and he knows it's coming. He's going to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why we're here today, and he knows it. So that's the course that he's on. And the request comes in verses 12 and 13. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. So on the road, there's ten men. They stay at a distance. Why do they stay at a distance? One, well, they were socially ostracized because they had leprosy. There's ten of them. Interesting. They're hanging together. Because nobody else will be with them, and they don't like isolation either, just like we don't like isolation. And so they have created their own little community of 10. They stand at a distance because the law says you've got to keep your distance. And so there they are, and they recognize Jesus, and they, they look to him for help, and they look to him as um, someone who can change their situation Someone who could cast a mulberry tree into the sea if he wanted to. But he doesn't, by the way. So, But this is about leprosy. They called out to Jesus, have pity on us. They don't even say, please heal me. They just said, have pity on us. We see the gift in verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. Just like that. He didn't say be healed. He didn't say, because of your faith, you are healed. No, he just says, okay. He just speaks the word. Go show yourselves to the priests. Why? Because the priests had to authenticate and approve that they were healed and that they could rejoin society and rejoin their communities. And uh, so, 
He says, go, and so they go. They do exactly what he said. They believed him, and they were cleansed just like that. They're healed of leprosy right on the spot, all ten of them. In verses 15 and 16, we see something unique, just one thankful heart. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, and they thanked him. He is just overwhelmed by God's mercy on him. And he wants to thank the one who gave him this gift. And he comes back, he's overwhelmed by grace, and he comes back and he worships Jesus. He thanks him. He gives him praise. He's overjoyed with this gift. And... um, It says, and he was a Samaritan. Just casually throw that in. And so we had this assumption that there's 10 of them, and maybe there are nine Jews. We don't know if there are other Samaritans in the group, but it's a mixture. And these folks don't get along. They don't like each other. They've been enemies for hundreds of years. Um, Samaritans were social outcasts uh, because of their racial ethnicity that got mixed in centuries past and because of that um, they they just they because of this separation and division among these peoples they sort of came up with their own religious perspective and they had their own worship place separate from uh, jerusalem they weren't welcome there anyway and so they they this great tension happened in the nation with the samaritans who lived in israel and so here's one of those guys and he's a Samaritan, and he gets who Jesus is, and he just experienced uh, being healed by Jesus, and he just comes back as a worshiper, and he's so thankful. So John 4.23 is with another Samaritan. Uh, Jesus meets, and he talks to her. It's a woman at the well. He says, yet a time is coming, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in truth... For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is seeking true worshipers. He's still seeking true worshipers today. And he has found one with that Samaritan who has come back as a worshiper. It's exactly um, what Jesus was talking about. And we see the questions in verses 17 through uh, 19. Jesus asks, were not all ten cleansed? Yes. Where are the other nine? They didn't come back. They got healed. They didn't come back. Verse 18, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus would have welcomed all ten, but only one wants to honor him. Then he said to him, rise, go, your faith has made you well. Other translations say, and I like it better, your faith has made you whole. You were healed physically, and all ten of them were healed physically, but now your faith has made you whole and complete, and now you have been spiritually healed. Now your sins have been forgiven, and now you are are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Application, our daily walk with God should be interspersed with thanksgiving. Let this story remind us, you and I need to be a people with thankful hearts. 
It's so easy for us to take life for granted. In fact, sometimes in Christianity, we get the sense that we are entitled for God to do good things for us. Because if I'm a good person, if I do some good things, God has got to come through and do good things for me. As if I'm entitled. And that's not what Christianity is all about. And so I just want to remind us to be thankful. Are you a thankful person? What are you thankful for? What has God done in your life? When is the last time you have seriously thought about being thankful, about all the things he's done for you? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. It's easy to ask God for stuff, for, for what I want. When I have a thankful heart, my focus sometimes switches from woe is me and how bad my life is to what God has done for me. And yes, my life might be hard, but I have God. I have a hope for the future. And being thankful makes all the difference in one's perspective. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 7 through 18. Pray continually. It's an ongoing relationship, living by faith, depending on God, talking to Him, giving thanks in all circumstances. doesn't say give thanks when things are going well. Learning to find something to be thankful for even in the hard times. When you are thankful, it's worship. When you make a list of all God's provision, whether it's your salvation, whether it's answered prayer, I'm talking about your life. Whether it's your finances, whether it's your job or your health, when you thank Him, it is worship. And he is honored, and he receives the credit and the glory. Four short lessons. Be responsible for, your, for how you live. Don't cause others to stumble. Forgive those who offend you. Trust Jesus in your daily life. Keep your focus on him, and keep your focus on his uh, work and his enablement. Be careful not to think too highly or too lowly of yourselves, but to align your perspective just the way God sees you. And you learn that through this book. Okay. And then be thankful. Be thankful for all that God has done for you. Because the Christian life, think about this, the Christian life, is a response of thanksgiving back to God. This is what he did for you. Now turn, follow him, and now you have a life to, to serve him and give back to him. It's not payback. It's not like, oh, I've got to reach a goal. It's just, I do it because he loves me. Now I do it because I love him. The most important thing is what we're here for today, and we're going to celebrate communion The most important thing is to thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. NIV says, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory 
over sin, victory over death, and victory over Satan, over the evil one. Um, and that's why we celebrate communion. Jesus celebrated the first time of communion with his disciples. The Apostle Paul then instructed the church to do this in remembrance of Jesus. To take a time, set aside a time, and reflect on what God has done for you. And over and over again, the command is to remember. And we take the bread, and we take the cup, and we remember. The bread is a symbol of what uh, Jesus did on the cross. It's a symbol of his body. It was crucified. It was his body that paid the penalty. Uh, his death paid the penalty for our sin. And then the cup is a symbol. It's a reminder of the blood that was shed at the cross. And it was a payment for our sin. And we are just to remember, this is what Jesus did for you and for me. And never forget it. And it ought to humble us all and raise us all up. So we're all clothed with humility. And um, this is a a privilege for a Christ follower and a responsibility for a Christ follower. And uh, the way we do it at the bridge is, uh, if, 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 you, if you've never been here for communion before, um, I'm going to pray and thank the Lord for the bread and the cup. Jesus modeled giving thanks back for the bread and the cup, for, for, his, for what he's done for us. And then um, we're going to have people come up and prepare communion and uh, when you're ready, you can just get up out of your chair and form a line and come down and, and take the bread and the cup and you can go back to your chair and, and you can take it whenever you're ready after you receive it. So one of the most important things about this is the Bible says before you, t you partake in this, before you participate, you need to make sure your sins are for confessed. And we are to examine ourselves. And so we want, to, we want to make sure that we've had a chance to do that. So if you haven't examined your life, don't come forward. This is for Christ followers who want to follow him. If you're not yet a follow Christ, follower of Christ, um, just sit back and relax and don't worry about this. You can think about it. I'd be glad to answer any questions afterwards. So... Um, I'm going to pray, and while I do, I'm going to ask those who are serving to just to come and uh, be prepared. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, we just pause before you. We are thankful, God, for what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us over 2,000 years ago. It's hard to imagine um, that he paid for our sins even back then, and we weren't even born yet, and yet you are... God, and you loved us before we were born, and you knew about our lives, and you knew that we would need you, and that we would place our faith, you would draw us to yourself, and you would forgive us, and we, we want to praise you for that, we want to thank you for that, we want to remember that. May that be a focus for our daily living, our focus for this time. May we be encouraged and appreciate you and love you more. And may we be humbled by you. 
Thank you uh, for the bread that represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cup that represents the blood that was shed for us on the cross. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. We acknowledge that we don't deserve it, that it's just by grace. And it's a gift you've given to us. Thank you for the cross.